Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where multiple times a week we have new and interesting content coming your way made for and by real estate investors for and by real estate investors and those interesting investing in real estate. And I also sit down occasionally uh, with somebody and pick their brain about uh, what's working in their business for entertainment and hopefully education. And if you enjoy this podcast and you haven't already, I'm serious, man, hook a brother up. Here's what I need you to do. Go on to iTunes and rate and review. That's one of the biggest ways you can help me. That's number one. Number two, help a brother out. Share this podcast. You know she didn't pay anything, right? You know there's no such thing as a uh, free lunch, right? Hook a brother up. I don't need money. Share that thing. If you enjoy. If you don't enjoy it, move on to another podcast, all right? Uh, another way you can help me out is um, reach out to me, jeremy at renegadedetroit.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Do you have any ideas? Um, otherwise let's grow this audience, man. Let's do this. Um, also I am a, uh, real estate agent, Keller Williams. If you have a property, you want me to list, that's another way you can thank me. You're going to pay someone to do it. Why not get somebody good and help a brother out? All right. Go to renegadedetroit.com. Uh, if you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. Hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And of course, go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. All right. Legal disclaimer. Don't blame me, man. Don't fucking blame me. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investor Show Quote of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast and hopefully your week as well. And hopefully this maybe sticks out in your head a little bit. It does for me. People do not decide their future. They decide their habits and their habits decide their future. F.M. Alexander. People do not decide their future. They decide their habits and their habits decide their future. Boom. What do you think about that? All right, folks. Sorry. I'm a little late this um, week with the podcast. You could probably tell from my voice. Um, I got the plague, man. I don't know what it was, but it swooped in on me. It started late last week and I, you know, I did my best impression. I ain't sick. I just ignore it, ignore it. But by Sunday night, it was catching up to me, but I think I still had that thing beat, you know, and I woke up like death Monday morning, literally like death. And I, I literally, I could not get out of bed. It was ridiculous. And I spent four days in bed. I did get out Wednesday night. I got an awesome podcast coming for you um, next week with story time with Jeff. I'm just going to give you a little, uh, <clears throat> little preview on that one. We did it at a bar at a, uh, a cigar and a whiskey bar. And actually I think it's a whiskey slash cigar bar in Ferndale called Secretos. And uh, it was me, Jeff Rabinowitz, uh, Tommy Desmond, and the elusive creature known as Tom Otterman, one of the founders of the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group. 
Um, another group I highly recommend you reach out to and go to and attend. They're also there on Facebook and they meet once a month. And, uh, this one was maybe a little light on uh, real estate, but it was a damn good time. And the proprietor was there and much whiskey was drank. Um, many cigars were smoked, set for by me because I was sick as fuck. I was just barely hanging in there and you could probably tell, but that would have been a difficult one to reschedule. So now I'm back. And what are we working on this week? Well, we're back to part three of the one thing. So uh, maybe you haven't read the first uh, 10 chapters. Go back. Go back and do that one, right? So we're reading The One Thing by Gary Keller. And today we're doing chapters 11 through 15. And I may have to stop and cough or blow my nose from time to time. And I hope you don't mind me doing that. I don't want to miss it. And basically, I just couldn't lay around anymore. I laid around as as much as I could lay around. So, all right. So let's open up to chapter 11. Of the one thing by Gary Keller. And for those uh, paying attention here, what is that going to be? It's going to be page 112. Chapter 11. The success habit. You know about habits. They can be hard to break and hard to create, but we are unknowingly acquiring new ones all the time. When we start and continue a way of thinking or a way of acting over a long enough period, We've created a new habit. The choice we face is whether or not we want to form habits that get us what we want from life. If we do, then the focusing question is the most powerful success habit we have. For me, the focusing question is a way of life. I use it to find my most leveraged priority, make the most out of my time, and get the biggest bang for my buck. Whenever the outcome absolutely matters, I ask it. I ask it when I wake up and start my day. I ask it when I get to work. And again, when I get home, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. And when I know the answer, I continue to ask it until I can see the connections, all my dominoes and all my dominoes are lined up. Obviously, you can drive yourself nuts analyzing every little aspect of everything you might do. I don't do that. And you shouldn't either start with the big stuff and see where it takes you. Oh, yeah, man. You know, you have that excuse like, I couldn't possibly do that, or where do I start, or I can't. Maybe sometimes they call it analysis paralysis, you know? I'm a big fan of just starting. And I think I lean a little bit the other way, where I sometimes start too fast, and I need to think a little bit more. But I like that. Start with the big stuff and see where it takes you. Back to the book. Over time, you'll develop your own sense of when to use the big picture question and when to use the small focus question. The focusing question is the foundational habit I use to achieve extraordinary results and lead a big life. I use it for some things and not at all for others. I apply it to the important areas of my life, my spiritual life, physical health, personal life, key relationships, job, business, and financial life. And I address them in that order. Each one is a foundation for the next. Because I want my life to matter, I approach each area by doing what matters most in it. I view these as the cornerstones of my life, and I found that when I'm doing what's most important in each area, my life feels like it's running on all cylinders. The focusing question can direct you to your one thing in the different areas of your life. Simply reframe the focusing question by inserting your area of a focus. You can also include 
What else can you include? You can also include a time frame, such as right now or this year, to give you an answer, the appropriate level of immediacy, or in five years or someday to find a big picture answer that points you at outcomes to aim for. Here are some, <clears throat> sorry, folks, this may happen. Here are some focusing questions to ask yourself. Say the category first, then state the question, add a time frame, and end by adding such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. For example, for my job, what's the one thing I can do to ensure I hit my goals this week such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? For my spiritual life, what's the one thing I could do to help others? Where, what's the one thing I could do to improve my relationship with God? For my physical health, where's the one, what's the one thing I can do to achieve my diet goals? What's the one thing I can do to ensure I exercise? What's the one thing I can do to relieve my stress? For my personal life, what's the one thing I can do to improve my skill at farming? <laughs> I filled in that quote there. What's the one thing I can do to find more time for myself to assign properties? See where I'm going with this? For my key relationships, what's the one thing I can do to improve my relationships with my spouse slash partner? What's the one thing I can do to improve my children's school performance? What's the one thing I can do to show my appreciation to my parents? What's the one thing I can do to make my family stronger for my job? What's the one thing I can do to ensure that I hit my goals? What's the one thing I can do to improve my skills? What's the one thing I can do to help my team succeed? What's the one thing I can do to further my career? For my business, what's the one thing I could do to make us more competitive? What's the one thing I could do to make our product the best? What's the one thing I could do to make us more profitable? What's the one thing I can do to improve our customer experience? And not last or least, for my finances, what's the one thing I can do to increase my net worth? What's the one thing I can do to improve my investment cash flow? What's the one thing I can do to eliminate my credit card debt? Getting the idea here? All right. Big ideas. So how do you make the one thing part of your daily routine? How do you make it strong enough to get extraordinary results at work and in other areas of your life? Here's a starter list drawn from our experience and our work with others. Number one, understand and believe it. The first step to, is to understand the concept of the one thing, then to believe that it can make a difference in your life. If you don't understand and believe, you won't take action. Seems simple enough, right? Understand and believe it. Let's see what would be my one thing. Serve the investor community. And it's starting to work, so I do believe it. Number two, use it. Ask yourself the focusing question. Start each day by asking, what's the one thing I can do today for whatever you want? So let's say for the podcast, such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. When you do this, your direction will become clear. Your work will be more productive and your personal life more rewarding. Number three, make it a habit. When you make asking the focusing question a habit, you'll fully engage its power to get the extraordinary results you want. It's a difference maker. Research says that this will take about 66 days. Whether it takes you a few weeks or a few months, stick with it until it becomes your routine. If you're not serious about learning the success habit, you're not serious about getting extraordinary results. Number four, leverage reminders. Set up ways to remind yourself to use the focusing question. 
one of the best ways to do this is to put up a sign at work that says, until my one thing is done, everything else is a distraction. We designed the back cover of this book to be a trigger. Set it on the corner of your desk so that it's the first thing you see when you get to work. Use notes, screensavers, calendar cues to keep making the connection between success habits and the results you seek. Put up reminders like the one thing equals extraordinary results or the success habit will get me to my goal. What I do is, um, I don't know if you guys use Google Calendar at all. I put everything in Google Calendar. So like my morning routine, all that. So it pops up and it reminds me. I also use Evernote and I got like a list of daily things I want to do. So I put it in there. I don't know if that helps you or not. Number five, back to the book, recruit support. Research shows that those around you can influence you tremendously. Starting a success support group with some of your work colleagues can help inspire all of you to practice the success habit every day. Get your family involved. Share your one thing. Get them on board. Use the focusing question around them to show them how the success habit can make a difference in their schoolwork, their personal achievements, or any other part of their lives. Man, that's that one savage. Recruit support. I've kind of been doing that, and that's one of the reasons why I joined a team as well for the accountability. But um, recruit support. And I think also they say this, like um, another way of saying this would be um, you're, I don't think it's a sum, but you're basically the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You know what I'm saying? Kind of the same thing. Make sure everybody's on uh, working for your goals, not against it. Back to the book. This one habit can become the foundation for many more. So keep your success habit working as powerfully as possible. Use the strategies outlined in part three, extraordinary results for goal setting and time blocking to experience extraordinary results every day of your life. Chapter 12, the path to great answers. The focusing question will help you identify your one thing in any situation. It will clarify what you want in the big areas of your life and then drill down to what you must do to get them. It's really a simple process. You ask a great question, then you seek out a great answer. It's as simple as two steps. It's the ultimate success habit. So they have a little drawing here. It says, ask a great question, think big and be specific. And it goes to number two, find a great answer, research and role model. Number one, ask a great question. The focusing question helps you ask a great question. Great questions like great goals are big and specific. Excuse me. They push you, stretch you, and aim you at big, specific answers. And because they're framed to be measurable, there's no wiggle room about what the results will look like. And that measurable thing is really important. That which is measured improves. And if you can't measure it, it's not going to improve right? At least you can't prove that it improved, right? You got to measure things. Got to get some evidence. Back to the book. Look at the great question metric. See figure 18. And figure 18 is a circle that is divided evenly into quarters. And um, number one is big and specific. Number two is big and broad. Number three is small and broad. And number four, small and specific. So it's like a circle that's cut into like four big pieces of pizza evenly. And that's what they're talking about. Um, now let's examine the pros and cons of each question quadrant ending with where you want to be big and specific quadrant. Number four, small and specific. What can I do to increase sales by 5% this year? 
This aims you in a specific direction, but there's nothing truly challenging about this question. For most salespeople, a 5% bump in sales could just as easily happen because the market shifted in your favor rather than anything you might have done. At best, it's an incremental gain, not a life-changing leap forward. Low goals don't require extraordinary actions, so they rarely lead to extraordinary results. Quadrant three, small and broad. What can I do to increase sales? This is not really an achievement question at all. It's more of a brainstorming question. It's great for listing your options, but requires more to narrow your options and go small. How much will sales increase? By what date? Unfortunately, this is the kind of average question most people ask and then wonder why their answers don't deliver extraordinary results. Quadrant two, big and broad. What can I do to double sales? Here you have a big question, but nothing specific. It's a good start, but the lack of specifics leaves more questions than answers. Doubling sales in the next 20 years is very different from attempting the same goal in a year or less. There are still too many options, and without specifics, you won't know where to start. Quadrant one, big and specific. What can I do to double sales in six months? Now you have all the elements of a great question. It's a big goal, and it's specific. You're doubling sales, and that's not easy. You also have a time frame of six months, which will be a challenge. You'll need a big answer. You'll have to stretch what you believe is possible and look outside the standard toolbox of solutions. See the difference? When you ask a great question, you're in essence pursuing a great goal. And whenever you do this, you'll see the same pattern, big and specific. A big specific question leads to a big specific answer, which is absolutely necessary for achieving a big goal. So if what can I do to double sales in six months is a great question, how do you make it more powerful? Convert it to the focusing question. What's the one thing I can do to double sales in six months such by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. Turning it into the focusing question goes to the heart of success by forcing you to identify what absolutely matters most and start there. Why? Because that's where big success starts too. Mm, I like that. Here, a little coffee break. By the way, if you haven't yet, go check out alwaysbrewingdetroit.com. Conveniently located in uh, northwest Detroit, uh, right at Grand River and uh, Southfield. So about a half a mile off that. Excellent coffee there. They serve Hazanos. Number two, back to the book. Find a great answer. The challenge of asking a great question is that once you've asked it, you're now faced with finding a great answer. Answers come in three categories, doable, stretch, and possibility. The easiest answer you can seek is the one that's already within reach of your knowledge, skills, and experience. With this type of solution, you probably probably already know how to do it and won't have to change much to get it. Think of this as doable and the most likely to be achieved. The next level up is a stretch question. While this is still within your reach, it can be at the farthest end of your range. You'll most likely have to do some research and study what others have done to come up with this answer. Doing it can be iffy since you might have to extend yourself to the very limits of your current abilities. Think of this as potentially achievable and probable depending on your effort. High achievers understand these first two routes but reject them. Unwilling to settle for ordinary when extraordinary is possible – 
they've asked a great question and want the very best answer. Extraordinary results require a great answer. Man, I'm going to highlight that. Extraordinary results require a great answer. Highly successful people choose to live at the outer limits of achievement. They're not, they not only dream, but deeply crave what is beyond their natural grasp. They know this type of answer is the hardest to come by, but also know that just by extending themselves to find it, they expand and enrich their life for the better. I think that's was that just a nice way of saying you need to think a lot bigger, right? Back to the book. If you want the most from your answer, you must realize that it lives outside your comfort zone. This is rare air. A big answer is never in plain view, nor is the path to finding one laid out for you. A possibility answer exists. A possibility answer exists beyond what is already known and being done. As with a stretch goal, you can start out by doing research and studying the lives of other high achievers, but you can't stop there. In fact, your research has just begun. Whatever you learn, you'll use it to do what only the greatest achievers do benchmark and trend. A great answer is essentially a new answer. Hmm. I wonder if it's just new in general or new to you. I wonder if you'll explain it. I'm sure you will. Back to the book. It is a leap across all current answers in search of the next one and is found in two steps. The first is the same as when you stretch. You uncover the best research and study the highest achievers. Anytime you don't know the answer, your answer is to go find your answer. In other words, by default, your first one thing is to search for clues and role models to point you in the right direction. The first thing to do is ask, has anyone else studied or accomplished this or something like it? The answer is almost always yes. So your investigation begins by finding out what others have learned. One of the reasons I've amassed a large library of books over the years is because books are a great go-to resource. Short of having a conversation with someone who has accomplished what you hope to achieve, in my experience, books and published works offer the most in terms of documented research and role models for success. The internet has quickly become an invaluable tool as well. Whether offline or online, you're trying to find people who have already gone down the road you're traveling so you can research, model, benchmark, and trend their experience. A college professor once told me, Gary, you're smart, but people have lived before you. You're not the first person to dream big, so you'd be wise to study what others have learned first and then build your actions on the back of their lessons. Damn. I'm going to highlight that. That's a good one right there. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I'd, I'd say that and do that all the time. But when I was like 19, 20, 21, yeah, I had a big problem with that, right? We know it all, don't we? We have every answer. I can do no wrong. It's a little easier at 37 to know what you don't know. Back to the book. He was so right, and he was talking to you too. The research and experience of others is the best place to start when looking for your answer. I'm going to highlight that as well. It's interesting. I didn't highlight much the last chapter, but a lot in this one. I bet if I read it again, I'd do it differently, wouldn't I? Back to the book. Armed with this knowledge, you can establish a benchmark, the current high water mark for all that is known and being done. With a stretch approach, this was your maximum, but now it is your minimum. It's not all you'll do, but it becomes the hilltop where you'll stand to see if you can spot what might come next. 
This is called trending, and it's the second step. You're looking for the next thing you can do in the same direction that the best performers are heading, or if necessary, in an entirely new direction. You're looking for the next thing you can do in the same direction that the best performers are heading, or if necessary, in an entirely new direction. Trending. This is helping me as much as it's helping you. Actually, that's the secret of the podcast, right? For those paying attention. Back to the book. This is how big problems are solved and big challenges are overcome. For the best answers rarely come from an an ordinary process. Whether it's figuring out how to leapfrog the competition, finding a cure for a disease, or coming up with an action step for a personal goal, benchmarking and trending is your best option. Because your answer will be original, you'll probably have to reinvent yourself in some way to implement it. A new answer usually requires new behavior. A new answer usually requires new behavior. So don't be surprised if along the way to sizable success, you change in the process, but don't let it stop you. I've changed a lot, I think. I have a long way to go, though. You're probably like me, don't you? Got a long way down the road, but still got a long way to go. I'm glad I'm not alone. Back to the book. This is where the magic happens and possibilities are unlimited. As challenging as it can be, trailblazing up the path of possibilities is always worth it. For when we maximize our reach, we maximize our life. Big ideas. Number one, think big and specific. Setting a goal you intend to achieve is like asking a question. It's a simple step from I'd like to do that to how do I achieve that? The best question, and by default, the best goal, is big and specific. Big because you're after extraordinary results. Specific to give you something to aim at and to leave no wiggle room about whether you hit the mark. A big and specific question, especially in the form of the focusing question, helps you zero in on the best possible answer. Number two, think possibilities. Setting a doable goal is almost like creating a task to check off your list. A stretch goal is more challenging. It aims you at the edge of your current abilities. You'll have to stretch to reach it. The best goal explores what's possible. When you see people and businesses that have undergone transformations, this is is where they live. Number three, benchmark and trend for the best answer. No one has a crystal ball, but with practice, you can become surprisingly good at anticipating where things are heading. The people and businesses who get there first often enjoy the lion's share of the rewards with few, if any, competitors. Benchmark and trend to find the extraordinary answer you need for extraordinary results. And this is something the people I'm training do wholesale calls, and I could do a lot better job at it as well, and I work on it, but being first counts for a lot. I tell them all the time that being first is like a B minus, you know, if you're first, you're a B minus and you can improve your skills after that. But if you show up second, it's going to be a lot harder. First counts for a lot. It just does. So, all right. We are now in part three, extraordinary results, unlocking the possibilities within you. Extraordinary results. There is a natural rhythm to our lives that becomes a simple formula for implementing the one thing and achieving extraordinary results. Purpose, priority, and productivity. I'm gonna purpose, priority, 
productivity. Back to the book. Bound together, these three are forever connected and continually confirming each other's existence in our lives. Their link leads to the two areas where you'll apply the one thing, one big and one small. Your big one thing is your purpose and your small one thing is a priority you take action on to achieve it. The most productive people start with purpose and use it like a compass. They allow purpose to be the guiding force in determining the priority that drives their actions. This is the straightest path to extraordinary results. Think of purpose, priority, and productivity as three parts of an iceberg. With typically only one-ninth of an iceberg above water, whatever you see is just the tip of everything that is there. This is exactly how productivity, priority, and purpose are related. What you see is determined by what you don't. And what they're showing is a picture of it. I think it's an iceberg. It looks more like a mountain underneath water and purpose and priority. You can't see. And above the water, you just see the tippy top of the pyramid or triangle or mountain as productivity. The more productive people are, the more purpose and priority are pushing and driving them. Mm. So it's kind of like a leading thing, right? Highlighting that. Back to the book. With the additional outcome of profit, it's the same for business. What's visible to the public, productivity and profit, is always buoyed by the substance that serves as a company's foundation, purpose and priority. All business people want productivity and profit, but too many fail to realize that the best path to attaining them is through purpose-driven priority. Personal productivity is the building block of all business profit. The two are inseparable. A business can't have unproductive people yet magically still have an immensely profitable business. Great businesses are built one productive person at a time. That's good. Great businesses are built one productive person at a time. So start with you, right? Back to the book. And not surprisingly, the most productive people receive the greatest rewards from their businesses. That's a little different than the story that's telling you how it's everybody else's fault. Yeah, this book is not for professional victims, is it? Connecting purpose, priority, and productivity determines how high above the rest successful individuals and profitable businesses rise. Understanding this is at the core of producing extraordinary results. Live with Purpose, Chapter 13. So how do you use purpose to create an extraordinary life? Ebenezer Scrooge shows us how. Cold-hearted, penny-pinching, and greedy, a man who despised Christmas and all things that give people happiness, his last name a byword for miserliness and meanness, Ebenezer Scrooge might have been the least likely candidate to teach us anything about how to live. Yet in Charles Dickinson's 1843 classic, A Christmas Carol, he does. The redemptive tale of Scrooge's transformation from stingy, callous, and unloved to considerate, caring, and beloved is one of the best examples of how our destinies are determined by our decisions, our lives shaped by our choices. Once again, fiction provides us a formula we can all follow to build an extraordinary life with extraordinary results. I'd like to beg your forgiveness, take a little literary license, and quickly retell this timeless tale to show you. One Christmas Eve, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the deceased spirit of Jacob Marley, his former business partner. We do not know if this is a dream or if it's real. Marley wails, I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. You will be haunted by three spirits from the past, present, future, as it turns out. Remember what is past between us. 
Now let's stop for a second and bear in mind who Scrooge is. Dickens describes him as a man whose old features are frozen by the cold within him. Tight-fisted with a head down and hand to the grindstone, Scrooge pays as little as possible and keeps as much as he can. He is secretive and solitary. No one ever stops him. We know a bunch of people like this in real estate, right? No one ever stops him in the streets to say hello. No one cares, for he cares for no one. He is a bitter, mean, covetous, old sinner, cold to the sight, cold to the touch, and cold of heart, with no thought in sight. His life is a lonely existence, and the world is worse off for it. Over the course of the evening, the three spirits visit Scrooge to show him his past, present, and future. Although there's no such thing as the past and the future, right? Just a thought in the now. Anyway, back to the book. Through these visits, he sees how he became the man he is, how his life is currently going, and what will ultimately happen to him and those around him. It's a terrifying experience that leaves no leaves him visibly shaken when he wakes up the next morning, not knowing whether it was real or a dream, but giddy upon discovering no time has passed, Scrooge realizes there is still time to alter his fate. In a joyous blur, he rushes into the street and instructs the first boy he sees to go buy the biggest turkey at the market and send it anonymously to the home of his sole employee, Bob Cratchit. Upon seeing a gentleman he'd once rebuffed for pleading charity for the needy, he prays for forgiveness and promises to donate huge sums of money to the poor. Ebenezer eventually ends up at the home of his nephew, where he begs forgiveness for being such a fool for far too long and accepts an invitation to stay for holiday dinner. His nephew's wife and guests, shocked at his heartfelt bliss, can barely believe this is Scrooge. The next morning, Bob Cratchit, upon arriving noticeably late to work, is confronted by Scrooge. What do you mean coming here at this time of day? I'm not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer. Before this wretched news can seek in, the incredulous Cratchit hears him say, and therefore I'm about to raise your salary. Scrooge goes on to become the Cratchit's, uh, Cratchit family's benefactor. He finds a doctor for Tiny Tim, Cratchit's invalid son, and becomes like the second father to him, like a second father to him. Scrooge lives out the rest of his day, spending his time and money doing everything he can for others. Through this simple story, Charles Dickens shows us a simple formula for creating an extraordinary life. Live with purpose, live with priority, live for productivity. Man, I just thought everybody else just gave us our stuff. I'm such a special snowflake, right? It's not how it works, but I exist and I deserve to have everything. All right, sarcasm aside, back to the book. As I reflect on this story, I believe Dickens reveals purpose as a combination of where we're going and what's important to us. He implies that our priority. Oh, man, sorry about that. He implies that our priority (coughs) is what we place the greatest importance on and our productivity comes from the actions we take. I apologize for that. I try not to cough, but it's hard sometimes. He lays out life as a series of connected choices where our purposes set our priority and our priority determines the productivity our actions produce. To Dickens, all purpose determines who we are. Scrooge is transparent and easy to understand, so let's revisit A Christmas Carol through the lens of Dickens' formula. At the place we enter his life, Scrooge's Scrooge's purpose is clearly about money. Hey, I like money, right? He pursues a life either working for it or being alone with it. Like Silas Marner counting it. That's probably not good. Back to the book. He cares for money more than for people and believes that money is the end by which any means are justified. 
based on his purpose, his priority is straightforward, making as much money for himself as he can. Collecting coin is what matters to Scrooge. As a result, his productivity is always aimed at making money. When he takes a break from making it for fun, he counts it. Earning, netting, lending, receiving, tallying, these are the actions that fill his days, for he is greedy, selfish, and unmoved by the human condition of those around him. By Scrooge's own standards, he's highly productive in accomplishing his purpose. By anyone else's, it's simply a miserable life. This would be the end of the story were it not for the perspective provided to Ebenezer by his former partner. Jacob Marley didn't want Scrooge to reach the same dead end he had. So, after the haunting, what happened to Scrooge? By Dickens' account, his purpose changed, which changed his most important priority, which changed where he focused his productivity. After Marley's intervention, Scrooge experienced a transformative power of a new purpose. So, who did he become? Well, let's look. As the narrative ends, Scrooge's purpose is no longer money, but people. He now cares about people. He cares about their financial circumstances and their physical condition. He sees himself happily in relationships with others, lending a hand any way he can. He values helping people more than hoarding money and believes money is good for the good it can do. What is his priority? Where he once saved money and used people, he now uses money to save people. His overriding priority is that is to make as much money as he can to help as many as he can. His actions? He is productive throughout his day, putting every penny he can towards others. The transformation is remarkable. The message unmistakable. Who we are and where we want to go determine what we do and what we accomplish. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to underline it. A life lived on purpose is the most powerful of all and the happiest. I'm highlighting that too. And that's just, I think, and a way to summarize that is you plan and work your life instead of, you know, I'm just talking about where you just let life happen and this life happens to you. I don't know if that makes sense. You, you make your life instead of just letting it happen. I think there's time to let things happen, but I think there's a lot of time for making things happen too and making sure you have the time. Back to the book, Happiness on Purpose. Ask enough people what they want in life and you'll hear happiness as the overwhelming response. Although we all have a wide variety of specific answers, happiness is what we most want. Yet, it's what most of us understand the least. No matter our motivations, most of what we do in life is ultimately meant to make us happy. And yet we get it wrong. Happiness doesn't happen the way we think. To explain, I want to share an ancient tale with you. The Begging Bowl. Upon coming out of his palace one morning and encountering a beggar, a king asks, What do you want? The beggar laughingly says, You'll ask as though you you ask as though you can fulfill my desire. Offended, the king replies, Of course I can. What is it? The beggar warns, Think twice before you promise anything. Now the beggar was no ordinary beggar, but the king's past life master, who had promised in their former life. I will come to try and wake you in your in our next life, the life you have missed, but I will come again to help you. The king, not recognizing his old friend, insisted, I will, I will fulfill anything you ask, for I am a very powerful king who can fulfill any desire. The beggar said, It is a very simple desire. Can you fill this begging bowl? Of course, said the king, and he instructed the visor 
to fill the man's begging bowl with money. The visor did, but when the money was poured into the bowl, it disappeared. So he poured more and more, but the moment he did, it would disappear. The begging bowl remained empty. Word spread throughout the kingdom and a huge crowd gathered. Ooh, little ego getting involved, right? I got to fill this bowl. The prestige and power of the king were at stake, so he told his visor, if my kingdom is to be lost, I am ready to lose it. But I cannot be defeated by this beggar. This is kind of like when you're you're in an auction, you overbid on a property. I don't know. Seems like an ego problem, right? Back to the book. He continued to empty his wealth into the bowl. Diamonds, pearls, emeralds. Where do you get pearls? Anyway, his treasury was becoming empty. And yet the begging bowl seemed bottomless. Everything put into it immediately disappeared. Finally, as a crowd stood in utter silence, the king dropped at the beggar's feet and admitted defeat. You are victorious, but before you go, fulfill my curiosity. What is the secret of this begging bowl? The beggar humbly replied, there is no secret. It is simply made out of human desire. Yeah, it's also why human desire sucks as a, um, I highlight that, as a measuring stick. Because desire will always outweigh resources, right? Especially resources you don't earn. Back to the book. One of our biggest challenges is making sure our life's purpose doesn't become a beggar's bowl, a bottomless pit of desire continually surging for the next thing that will make us happy. That's a losing proposition. You know, it's like winning the win without a purpose, I guess. Acquiring money and obtaining these things are pretty much all done for the pleasure we expect them to bring. On one hand, this actually works. Securing money or something we can we want can spike our happiness meter for a moment. Then it goes back down. Over the ages, our greatest minds have pondered happiness and their conclusions are much the same. Having money and things won't automatically lead to lasting happiness. How circumstances affect us depends on how we interpret them as they relate to our life. If we lack a big picture view, we can easily fall into serial success seeking. Why? Once we get what we want, our happiness sooner or later wanes because we quickly become accustomed to what we acquire. This happens to everyone and eventually leaves us bored, seeking something new to get or do. Worse, we may not even stop or slow down to enjoy what we've got because we automatically get up and go for something else. If we're not careful, we end up ricocheting from achieving and acquiring to acquiring and achieving without ever taking time to fully enjoy any of it. This is a good way to remain a beggar, And the day we realize this is the day our lives change forever. So how do we find enduring happiness? Happiness happens on the way to fulfillment. I'm going to highlight that real quick. Hold on. Hope you guys are digging this. Back to the book. Dr. Martin Seligman, whatever past president of the American Psychological Association believes there are five factors that contribute to our happiness, positive emotion and pleasure, achievement, relationships, engagement, and meaning. Of these, he believes engagement or meaning are the most important. Becoming more engaged in what we do by finding ways to make our life more meaningful is the surest way to finding lasting happiness. Becoming more engaged in what we do. I'm going to highlight that. You guys, are you guys highlighting things? I hope you're not just highlighting what I'm highlighting. 
Just because I don't highlight it doesn't mean you shouldn't highlight it. You know, we're all different people. Back to the book. When our daily actions fulfill a bigger purpose, the most powerful and enduring happiness can happen. Take money, for instance. Since money represents both getting something and the potential to get more, it makes for a great example. Many people not only misunderstand how to make money, but also how it makes us happy. I've taught wealth building to everyone from seasoned entrepreneurs to high school students. And whenever I ask, how much money do you want to earn? I get all kinds of answers, but usually the number is quite high. When I ask, how did you pick this number? I frequently get the familiar answer. Don't know. I then ask, can you tell me your definition of a financially wealthy person? Invariably, I get numbers that start at a million dollars and go up from there. When I ask how they arrived at this, they often say, it sounds like a lot. My response is, it is and it isn't. It all depends on what you do with it. I believe that financially wealthy people are those who have enough money coming in without having to work to finance their purpose in life. Hmm. Boy, I'm not there. Got some work cut out for me. Hey, a little coffee break. Drink a little coffee. Back to the book. Now, please realize that this definition presents a challenge to anyone who accepts it. To be financially wealthy, you must have a purpose for your life. In other words, without purpose, you'll never know when you have enough money and you can never be financially wealthy. It isn't that having more money won't make you happy. To a point, it certainly can, but then it stops. For more money to continue to motivate you will depend on what you want, what you want more. It's been said that the end shouldn't justify the means, but be careful. When achieving happiness, any end you seek will only create happiness for you through the means it takes to achieve it. Wanting more money just for the sake of getting it won't bring happy, won't bring the happiness you seek from it. Happiness happens when you have a bigger purpose than having more, than having more fulfills, which is why we say happiness happens on the way to fulfillment. The power of purpose. Purpose is the straightest path to power and the ultimate source of personal strength, strength to conviction and strength to persevere. The prescription for extraordinary results is knowing what matters to you and taking daily doses of action in alignment with it. When you define your purpose in life, clarity comes faster, which leads to more conviction in your direction, which usually leads to faster decisions. When you make faster decisions, you'll often be the one who makes the first decisions and winds up with the best choices. And when you have the best choices, you have the opportunity for the best experiences. This is how knowing where you're going helps lead you to the best possible outcomes and experiences life has to offer. Purpose also helps you. When things don't go your way, life gets through, gets tough at times, and there's no way around that. Aim high enough, you'll live long enough, and you'll encounter your share of tough times. More my fair share. That's okay. We all experience this. Knowing why you're doing something provides the inspiration and motivation to give the extra, extra perspiration needed to persevere when things go south. I'd like you to say that 10 times fast. Good Lord. Sticking with something long enough for success to show up is a fundamental requirement for achieving extraordinary results. Purpose provides the ultimate glue that can help you stick to the path you've set. When what you want to do matches your purpose, your life just feels in rhythm. And the path you beat with your feet seems to match the sound in your head and heart. 
live with purpose, and don't be surprised if you actually hum more and even whistle while you work. When you ask yourself, what's the one thing I can do in life that would mean that most to me in the world, such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or necessary, you're using the power of the one thing to bring purpose to your life. Big ideas. Number one, happiness happens on the way to fulfillment. We all want to be happy, but seeking it isn't the best way to find it. The surest path to achieving lasting happiness happens when you make your life about something bigger, when you bring meaning and purpose to your everyday actions. Number two, discover your big why. Discover your purpose by asking yourself what drives you. What's the thing that gets you up in the morning and keeps you where you're tired and worn down? Sometimes refer to this as your big why. Excuse me. It's why you're excited with your life. It's why you're doing what you're doing. Number three, absent an answer, pick a direction. Purpose may sound heavy, but it doesn't have to be. Think of it as simply the one thing you want your life to be about more than any other. Try writing down something you'd like to accomplish and to describe how you do it. For me, it looks like this. My purpose is to help people live their greatest life possible through my teaching, coaching, and writing. So then, what does my life look like? Teaching is my one thing and has been for almost 30 years. At first, it was teaching clients about the market and how to make great decisions. Next, it was teaching salespeople in the classroom during sales meetings and one-on-one. Later, it was teaching business classes. Then it became teaching high performers models and strategies for high achievement. And the last 10 years has been teaching seminars on specific life building principles. What I teach is when what I teach is what I then coach and is supported by what I write. Pick a direction, start marching down the path and see how you like it. Time brings clarity. And if you find you don't like it, you can always change your mind. It's your life. I like that. Time brings clarity. And if you find you don't like it, you can always change your mind. It's your life. Just get started, basically, right? Get started, Holmes. Chapter 14. Live by priority. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. Alice's classic encounter with the Cheshire Cat and Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland reveals the close connection between purpose and priority. Live with purpose and you know where you want to go. Live by priority and and you'll know what to do to get there. When each day begins, we each have a choice. We can ask, what shall I do or what should I do? Without direction, without purpose, whatever you shall do will always get you somewhere. But when you're going somewhere on purpose, there will always be something you should do that will get you where you must go. When your life is on purpose, living by priority takes precedence. Goal setting to the now. As Ebenezer Scrooge profoundly discovered, our life is driven by the purpose we give it. But there's a catch even while he had to confront. But there's a catch even he had to confront. Purpose has the power to shape our lives only in direct proportion to the power of the priority we connect to it. Purpose without priority is powerless. To be precise, the word is priority, not priorities, and it originated in the 14th century from the Latin prior, meaning first. 
If something mattered the most, it was a priority. Curiously, priority remained unpluralized until around the 20th century. When the world apparently demoted it to mean generally something that matters and the plural priorities appeared. With the loss of its initial intent, a wide variety of sayings like most pressing matter, prime concern, and on the front burner pitched in to recapture the essence of the original. Today, we elevate priority to its former meaning by adding highest, top, first, main, most important in front of it. It would seem priority has traveled an interesting road. What is that? Uh, The main thing is keep the main thing, the main thing. Back to the book. So watch your language. You may have many ways to talk about priority, but no matter the words you choose to achieve extraordinary results, your meaning must be the same one thing. Whenever I teach goal setting, I make it my top priority to show how a goal and priority work together. I do this by asking, what do we set goals? Why do we set goals and create plans? In spite of the good answers I get, the truth is we have goals and plans for only one reason to be appropriate in the moments of our lives that matter. While we may pull from the past and uh, forecast the future, our only reality is the present moment. I think I was talking about this earlier. There is no such thing as a past and future. The past is a memory and the future uh, past is a memory now and the future is just something we're guessing about, right? Back to the book. Uh, While we may pull from the past and forecast the future, our only reality is the present moment. Right now is all we have to work with. Our past is but a former now, our future a potential one. To drive this point home, I started referring to the way we create a powerful priority as goal setting to the now to emphasize why we are creating a priority in the first place. The truth about success is that our ability to achieve extraordinary results in the future lies in stringing together powerful moments one after another. What you do in any given moment determines what you experience in the next. Your present now and all future nows are undeniably determined by the priority you live in the moment. The deciding factor in determining how you set the priority is who wins the battle between your present and future selves. If you're offered a choice of $100 today or $200 next year, which would you choose? The $200, right? You would if your goal is to make the most money from the opportunity. Strangely, most people don't make that choice. Economists have long known that even though people prefer bigger rewards over smaller ones, they have an even stronger preference for present rewards over future ones, even when the future rewards are much bigger. In an ordinary occurrence, oddly named hyperbolic discounting, the farther away a reward is in the future, the smaller the immediate motivation to achieve it. I'm going to highlight that. My voice is getting a little gravelly too. I'm oh, sorry. We're going to be wrapping this up here pretty quick. I think anyway. Lots of distractions today. Back to the book. Maybe it's because objects that are further away appear smaller, so people mistakenly assume that they they really are and discount their value. They might explain why so many that might explain why so many people actually choose the $100 today over twice the amount in the future. Their present bias overrides logic and they allow a big future with potentially extraordinary results to get in the way, to get away. Now imagine the devastating impact living this way every day could have on your future self. Remember our conversation about delayed gratification? Turns out that what starts out as marshmallows can later cost you much more. 
We need a simple way of thinking to save us from ourselves. Set the right priority and move closer toward accomplishing our purpose. Goal setting to the now will get you there. By thinking through the filter of goal setting to the now, you'll set a future goal and then methodically drill down to what you should be doing right now. It can be a little like a Russian matroska doll. I don't know if I said that right. And that your one thing right now is nested inside the one thing today, which is nested inside the one thing this week, which is nested inside the one thing this month. It's all a small thing. You can actually build up to a big one. You're lining up your dominoes. And here's a picture of goal setting now. A someday goal. What's the one thing I want to do someday? A five-year goal to a one-year goal to a monthly goal to a weekly goal to a daily goal to a right now goal. So basically, it's just uh, figure out what your goal is and then break it down into pieces uh, until you have daily tasks you can do to get your goal done. Does that make sense? Back to the book. To understand how goal setting to the now will guide your thinking and determine your most important priority, read this out loud to yourself. Based on my someday goal, what's the one thing I can do in the next five years to be on track to achieve it? Now, based on my five-year goal, what's the one thing I can do this year to be on track to achieve my five-year goal so that I'm on track to achieve my someday goal? Now, based on my goal this year, what's the one thing I can do this month so I'm on track to achieve my goal this year? So I'm on track to achieve my five-year goal. So I'm on track to achieve my someday goal. Now, based on my goal this month, what's the one thing I can do this week? I'm not going to read this whole damn thing. Bore the shit out of you. So that goes all the way down, basically, to the drawing I was talking about. I hope you hung in there. I didn't, Gary. I didn't hang in there, man. I hope you hung in there and read the entire thing. Why? Because you're training your mind how to think, ah, shit. All right, I'm going to go back and do it. Damn it, Gary. Now, based on my goal this month, what's the one thing I can do this week so I'm on track to achieve my goal this month, so I'm on track to achieve my goal this year, so I'm on track to achieve my five-year goal, so I'm on track to achieve my someday goal. Now, based on my goal this week, what's the one thing I could do today so I'm on track to achieve my goal this week, so I'm on track to achieve my goal this month, so I'm on track to achieve my goal this year, so I'm on track to achieve my five-year goal, so I'm on track to achieve my someday goal. So based on my goal today, what's the one thing I can do right now so I'm on track to achieve my goal today, so I'm on track to achieve my goal this week, so I'm on track to achieve my goal this month, so I'm on track to achieve my goal this year, so I'm on track to achieve my five-year goal, so I'm on track to achieve my someday goal. Whoo, I did it. I hope you hung in there. I did and read the entire thing. I went back. Why? Because you're training your mind how to think how to correct one, connect one goal with the next one over time until you know the most important thing you must do right now. You're learning how to think big but go small. I'm going to highlight that. I hope I didn't confuse you guys. I didn't mean to fight it so much, but it did seem a little, a little repetitive, right? But I did it, damn it. All right, back to the book. To prove its value, Just skip the steps by asking yourself, what's the one thing I can do right now so I'm on track to achieve my someday goal? I like that. Doesn't work. The moment it's too far from the future for you to clearly see your key priority. The moment is too far in the future. In fact, you can keep adding back in today, this week, and so on, but you won't see the powerful priority you seek until you've you've added back in all the steps. It's why most people never get close to their goals. 
They haven't connected today to all the tomorrows it will take to get there. Connect today to all your tomorrows. It matters. Damn. Gary Savage as fuck. Research backs this up. In three separate studies, psychologists observed 262 students to see the impact of visualization on outcomes. The students we asked to visualize in one of two ways. Those in one group were told to visualize the outcome, like getting an A on an exam, and the others were asked to visualize the process needed to achieve the desired outcome, like all the study sessions needed to earn the A in the exam. In the end, students who visualized the process performed better across the board. They studied earlier and more frequently and earned higher grades than those who simply visualized the outcome. People tend to be overly optimistic about what they could accomplish, and therefore most don't, most don't think things all the way through. Researchers call this the planning fallacy. Visualizing the process, breaking a big goal down into steps needed to achieve it, helps engage the strategic thinking you need to plan for and achieve extraordinary results. This is why goal setting to the now really works. And there's a picture, you know, it's like his lead domino, which is right now, which is then knocking down a daily goal, which then knocks down a weekly goal, which then knocks down a monthly, then a yearly, then a five year, and then a someday goal. So it's like all dominoes, like in an S. Back to the book. I have this dialogue with people every day. It's particularly effective when they ask me what they should do. I turn around and say, before I answer your question, let me ask you something. Where are you going and where do you want to be someday? Without fail, as I walk them through the goal setting to the now, they catch on quickly and come up with their own answers. And by the time they tell me the one thing they should be doing right now, I laughingly ask, so why are you still talking to me? Yeah, Gary. Your last step is to write down your answers. Much has been written about writing down goals and for very good reason. It works. In 2008, Dr. Gail Matthews of the Dominican University of California recruited 267 participants from a wide range of professions, lawyers, accountants, nonprofit employees, marketers, etc., and a variety of countries. Those who wrote down their goals were 39.5% more likely to accomplish them. Writing down your goals and your most important uh, priority is your final step to living by priority. Sorry, let me read that again. Writing down your goals and your most important priority is your final step to living by priority. Big ideas. There can be, there can only be one. Your most important priority is the one thing you can do right now that will help you achieve what matters most to you. You may have many priorities, but dig deep and you'll discover there's always one that matters most. Your top priority, your one thing. For me, I think it's this podcast. Um, well, it's one thing, right? Serve uh, my community of investors. Number two, goal set to the now. Knowing your future goals, how you begin. Identifying the steps you need to accomplish along the way keeps you your thinking clear while you uncover the right priority you need to accomplish right now. I think do this with other people too that you like, know, and trust. Maybe even people who are doing what you what you want to be doing, right? Number three, Put pen to paper, write your goals down, and keep them close. I do this every day um, in my calendar. Pull your purpose through a single priority built by goal setting to the now and that priority, the one thing you can do such by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary, will show you the way to extraordinary results. And once you know what to do, the only thing left is to go forward from knowing to doing.
And once you know what to do, the only thing left is to go from knowing to doing. Yeah, sometimes I skip the knowing and just go right to doing. I probably shouldn't do that, should I? All right. Chapter 15. I think this is the last one we're going to do today. My voice is going. Number 15, live for productivity. Ebenezer Scrooge's story might have been a footnote in literary history except for this. He acted passionate about his new purpose and empowered by a priority that fulfilled it. He got up and got going. Productive action transforms lives. Let's go be productive. We'll never be heard in the movies as the Calvary takes the hill. No, probably not. It's not the first choice by a coach, manager, or general uses as a rallying cry to arouse deep emotion and inspire the troops. It's not what you say to yourself as you take a deep breath and dive into a challenge or face competition. And Dickens never had Scrooge utter these words as he took command of his transformed life. Yet productive is exactly what Scrooge was, and there's no better word than productivity to describe what you want from what you do when the outcome matters. Mm. When the outcome matters, I'm going to highlight this. Yeah. Are you guys highlighting as you go? I hope so. We're doing this together, right? Don't be lazy about this. It works if you work it. Back to the book. We are always doing something, working, playing, eating, sleeping, standing, sitting, breathing. If we're alive, we're doing something. Even if we're doing nothing, that's something. Every minute of every day, the question is never will we be doing something, but rather what that something is we'll be doing. Sometimes what we do doesn't matter, but sometimes it does. And when it does, what we do defines our life more than anything else. In the end, putting together a life of extraordinary results simply comes down to getting the most out of what you do and what you do when what you do matters. I'm going to read that again. In the end, putting together an extraordinary, a life of extraordinary results simply comes down to getting the most out of what you do when what you do matters. You know how you read a sentence and it was never how you would say it? You kind of fumble it. I feel like I did that right there. <laughs> Hopefully you're reading along and I didn't butcher it too badly, right? Back to the book. Living for productivity produces extraordinary results. Whenever I teach productivity, I always start by asking, what type of time managing system do you use? The answers are as varied as the number of people in the room. Paper calendar, electronic calendar, day timer, at a glance weekly planner, you name it and I hear it. Then I ask, so how did you choose yours? The reasons cited come in every shape, size, color, price, and criteria imaginable. But the students invariably describe the format, not the function, what they are, not how they work. So when I say, that's great, but what kind of system do you use? The answer is always the same. What do you mean? Well, if everyone has the same amount of time and yet some earn more than others, I ask, can we then say that it's how we use our time that determines the money we make? Everyone always agrees. So I continue. If this is true, the time, that time is money, then the best way to describe a time-managing system might just be by the money it makes. So do you think you're using a $10,000 a year system, a $20,000 a year system, $50,000, $500,000 a year system, or are, you using, or are you using a $1 million plus system? Silence. Until inevitably somebody asks, how do we know? To which I reply, how much do you make? Boom. Savage. 
If money is a metaphor for producing results, then it's clear. A time-managing system's success can be judged by the productivity it produces. The strange thing about my life is I never worked for anyone who wasn't a millionaire or didn't become one. I didn't set out for this to happen. It just did. And the most important thing I learned from these experiences is that the most successful people are the most productive people. Yeah, be productive. I'm going to highlight that. Got to get shit done. Don't feel bad about doing it either. Back to the book. Productive people get more done, achieve better results, and earn far more in their hours than the rest. They do so because they devote maximum time to being productive on their top priority, their one thing. They time block their one thing and then protect their time blocks with a vengeance. They're connected, they've connected the dots between working their time blocks consistently and the extraordinary results they seek. And there's a picture of a time block, your one thing, and protect your time block. Time blocking. I often say that I come from a long line of lethargic people. This is usually good for a laugh, but it's also true. It seems at times that my genes just might have more in common with the tortoise than the hare. On the other hand, some of the people I work with are so blessed with energy they actually vibrate. Amazingly, they're able to work long hours over extended periods and never wear down. When I try to follow suit, in less than a week, my body simply falls apart. I've discovered that no matter how hard I try, I can't use more time as my main means of doing more. I've been doing that for so long. I need to stop doing that. It's not just, it's just not physically possible for me. So given my constraints, I've had to find a way to be highly productive in the hours I can put in. The solution, time blocking. Most people think there's never enough time to be successful, but there is when you block it. Time blocking is a very results-oriented way of viewing and using time. It's a way of making sure that what has to be done gets done. Alexander Graham Bell said, Concentrate all your thoughts upon the work at hand. The sun's rays do not burn until brought to a focus. Time blocking harnesses your energy and centers it on your most important work. It's, pro it's productivity's greatest power tool. So go to your calendar and block off all the time you need to accomplish your one thing. If it's a one-time one thing, block off the appropriate hours and days. If it's a regular thing, block off the appropriate time every day so it becomes the habit. Everything else, other projects, paperwork, email, calls, correspondence, meetings, and all the other stuff must wait. When you time block like this, you're creating the most productive day possible in a way that's repeatable every day for the rest of your life. Unfortunately, if you're like most individuals, your typical day might look something like figure 27. And figure 27 is um, it's a circle and it, it's everything else. And there's your one thing is one small piece of pie in your typical day. Uh, the most productive people's day is dramatically different. See figure 28. And that's another circle. And it's uh, basically half of it. So it is filled in with your one thing and the other half is everything else. Back to the book. If disproportionate results come from one activity, then you must give that one activity disproportionate time. Boom. I'm going to go ahead and highlight that. Must too. Didn't say should. May, think, consider. It said must. Back to the book. Each and every day, ask the focusing question for your block time. Today, what's the one thing I can do 
for my one thing such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. When you find the answer, you'll be doing the most leveraged activity for your most leveraged work. This is how our results become extraordinary. Those who do this, in my experience, are the ones who not only become the most accomplished, but who also have the most career opportunities. Slowly but surely, they become known in their organization for their their one thing and become irreplaceable. Ultimately, no one can imagine or tolerate the cost of losing him. The opposite is equally true, by the way, for those lost in the land of everything else. Once you've done your one thing for the day, you can devote the rest of it to everything else. Just using the focusing question to identify your next priority and give the task the time it deserves. Repeat this approach until your workday is done. Getting everything else done may help you sleep better at night, but it's unlikely to earn you promotion. Time blocking works on the premise that a calendar records appointments but doesn't care who those appointments are with. So when you know your one thing, make an appointment with yourself to tackle it. Every day, great salespeople generate leads, great programmers program, great artists paint. Take any profession or any position and fill in the blank. Great success shows up when time is devoted every day to being great. And it shows a picture of a calendar and what your one thing is. Also has you plan a vacation. I think that's getting to the future. Back to the book. To achieve extraordinary results and experience greatness, time block these three things in the following order. Time block your time off. Time block your one thing. Time block your planning time. Number one, time block your time off. Extraordinary, extraordinarily successful people launch their year by taking time out to plan their time off. Why? They know they'll need it and they'll know they'll be able to afford it. In truth, the most successful simply see themselves as working between vacations. On the other hand, the least successful don't deserve time off because they don't think they'll deserve it or be able to afford it. By planning your time off in advance, you are, in effect, managing your work time around your downtime instead of the other way around. You're also letting everyone else know how, know well in advance when you'll be out so they'll plan accordingly. When you intend to be successful, you start by protecting time to recharge and reward yourself. Take time off. Block out long weekends and long vacations, then take them. You'll be more rested, more relaxed, and more productive afterwards. Everything needs to rest to function better, and you're no different. Resting is as important as working. I could probably uh, take a page out of this, shouldn't I? Yes, I'm pretty guilty of this. Resting is is as important as working. There are a few examples of successful people who violate this, but they are not our role models. They succeed in spite of how they rest and renew, not because of it. Number two, time block your one thing. After you've time blocked your time off, time block your one thing. Yes, you read that right. Your most important work comes second. Why? Because you can't happily sustain success in your professional life if you neglect your personal recreation time. Time block your time off and then make time for your one thing. The most productive people, the ones who experience extraordinary results, design their days around doing their one thing. Their most important appointment each day is with themselves and they never miss it. If they complete their one thing before their time block is done, they don't necessarily call it a day. They use the focusing question to tell them how to use the time they have left. Similarly, If they have a specific goal for their one thing, they finish it, regardless of the time. 
In A Geography of Time, Robert Levine points out that most people work on a clock time. It's five o'clock. I'll see you tomorrow. While others work on event time. My work is done when it's done. Think about it. The dairy farmer doesn't get to knock off at a certain time. He goes home when the cows have been milked. It's the same for any position in any profession where results matter. The most productive people work on event time. They don't quit until their one thing is done. The key to making this work is to block time as early in your day as you possibly can. Give yourself, hold on, I'm going to highlight that. Yes. Give yourself 30 minutes to an hour to take care of morning priorities, then move to your one thing. My recommendation is to block four hours a day. This isn't a typo. I repeat, four hours a day. Honestly, that's the minimum. If you can do more, then do it. Shit. Four hours a day? Man, oh, man, oh, man. Back to the book. In On Writing, Stephen King describes his workflow. My own schedule is pretty clear cut. Mornings belong to whatever is new, the current composition. Afternoons are for naps and letters. Evenings are for reading, family, Red Sox games on TV, and any revisions that just cannot wait. Basically, mornings are my prime writing time. Four hours a day may scare you more than King's novels, but you can't argue with his results. Stephen King is one of the most successful and prolific writers of our time. Whenever I tell this story, there's always one person who says to me, well, sure, it's easy for Stephen King. He's Stephen King. To that, I simply say, I think the question you must ask yourself is this. Does he get to do this because he is Stephen King or is he Stephen King because he does this? That invariably stops the discussion cold. Yeah, you know, those people always got fucking excuses for why they can't ever do anything. Oh, man. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Back to the book. Like so many other successful writers, early in his career, King had to find his time blocks where he could. Mornings, evenings, even lunch breaks, because his day job didn't accommodate his ambition for his life. Once extraordinary results started showing up and he could earn a living from his one thing, he was able to move his time blocks to a more sustainable time. An executive assistant on our team recently transitioned to time block to blocking large chunks of time for a project. It was stressful at first. She was continually interrupted. Email alerts pinged, colleagues dropped by, team members provided a steady stream of requests for her time. These weren't even distractions. They were her job. In the end, she had to borrow a laptop and a book of conference room uh, and book a conference room to escape drive-bys and random non-urgent requests. But within just a week, everyone became accustomed to the fact that for regular periods of time, she would not be accessible. They adjusted. It took a week, not a month or a year, a week. Meetings got rescheduled and life went on. And she experienced a huge leap in productivity. I feel like that all the time, right? Like um, you're showing up late or you're like behind or something like that. I don't know that sense of urgency, which I think can be a good thing. I think it also be a bad thing. I think sometimes with me, it's a bad thing. Um, back to the book. No matter who you are, large time blocks work. Paul Graham's 2009 essay, Maker's Schedule, Manager's Schedule, underscores the need for large time blocks. Graham, one of the founders of the innovative venture capital firm Y Combinator, argues that normal business culture gets in the way of the very productivity it seeks because of the way people traditionally schedule their time. Graham divides all work into two buckets, maker, do or create, and manager, oversee or direct. 
Maker time requires large blocks of the clock to write code, develop ideas, generate leads, recruit people, produce products, or execute on projects and plans. This time tends to be viewed in half-day increments. Manager time, on the other hand, gets divided into hours. This time typically has one moving from meeting to meeting, and because those who oversee or direct tend to have power and authority, they are in a position to make everyone resonate at their frequency. They can create a huge conflict if those needing maker time are pulled into meetings at odd hours, destroying the very time blocks they need to move themselves and the company forward. Graham embraced this insight and created a company culture at Y Combinator that now runs completely on a maker schedule. All meetings get clustered at the end of the day. That's a great idea. To experience extraordinary results, be a maker in the morning and a manager in the afternoon. I like that. Your goal is one and done. If you don't time block each day to do your one thing, your one thing won't become a done thing. Number three, time block your planning time. This is what I got to do. I tried to do this last week and just failed miserably. Back to the book. The last priority you time block is planning time. This is when you reflect on where you are and where you want to go. For annual planning, schedule this time late enough in the year that you have a sense of your trajectory, but not so late that you lose your running start for the next. Take a look at your someday and five-year goals and assess the progress you must make in the next year to be on track. You may even add new goals, re-envision old ones, or eliminate any that no longer reflect your purpose or priorities. Block an hour each week to review your annual and monthly goals. That seems like so long. I think it's that sense of urgency trying to screw me up again. I'm just highlighting that. First, ask what needs to happen that month for you to be on target for your annual goals. Then ask what must happen that week to be on course for your monthly goals. You're essentially asking, based on where I am right now, what's the one thing I need to do this week to stay on track for my monthly goal and for my monthly goal to be on track for my annual goal? You're lining up the dominoes. Decide how much time you'll need to achieve this and reserve that amount of time on your calendar. In effect, you could say that when you time block your planning time, you're really time blocking your time to time block. Think about it. Say that 10 times fast. In July 2007, software developer Brad Isaac shared a productivity secret he reportedly got from comedian Jerry Seinfeld. Before Seinfeld was a household name and still regularly toured, Isaac ran into him at Open Mic Comedy Club and asked him for advice on how to be a better comedian. Seinfeld told him the key was to write jokes, hint his one thing, every day. And the way he figured out how to make that happen was to hang a huge annual calendar on the wall and put a big X across every day he worked on his craft. After a few days, you'll have a chain, Seinfeld said. Just keep at it and the chain will grow longer every day. You'll like seeing the chain, especially when you got a few weeks under your belt. Your only job then is not to break the chain. Don't break the chain. What I love about Seinfeld's method is that it resonates with everything I know to be true. It's simple. It's based on doing one thing and it creates some momentum. You could look at the calendar and be overwhelmed. How can I commit to this for an entire year? But the system is designed to bring your biggest goal to the now and simply focus on making the next X. As Walter Elliott said, perseverance is not a long race. It's many short races one after another. 
as you compete these short races and get a chain going, it gets easier and easier. Momentum and motivation start to take over. There is magic in knocking down your most important domino day after day. All you have to do is avoid breaking the chain one day at a time until you generate a powerful new habit in your life, the time-blocking habit. Sound simple? Time-blocking is if you protect it. Protect your time block. For time blocks to actually block time, they must be protected. Although time blocking isn't hard, protecting the time you've blocked is. The world doesn't know your purpose or priorities and isn't responsible for them. You are. So it's your job to protect your time blocks from all those who don't know what matters most to you and from yourself when you forget. The best way to protect your time is to adopt the mindset they can't be moved. So when someone tries to double book you, just say, I'm sorry, I already have an appointment at that time and offer other options. If uh, if the other person is disappointed, you're sympathetic, but ultimately unmoved. Extraordinary results oriented people, the very people who have the most demands on their time do this every day. They keep their most important appointment. The toughest part is navigating a high level request. How do you say no to someone important like your boss or a key client or your mom who asks you to do something with a high sense of urgency? One way is to say yes and then ask if I have that done by a specific time in the future, would that work? Most often, these requests are more about the immediate need to hand a task off than about a need for it to be done immediately. So the requester usually just wants to know it will get done. Sometimes the request is real, needs to be done now, and you must drop what you're doing and do it. In this situation, follow the rule. If you erase, you must replace and immediately reschedule your time block. Then there's you. If you're already feeling overbooked and overworked, it can seem incredibly challenging to hold to a time block. It can be hard to imagine how everything else will get done when so much is given to one thing. The key is to fully internalize the domino fall that will happen when your one thing gets done. And remember that everything else you might do or have to do will be easier or unnecessary. When I first began the time block, the most effective thing I did was to put up a sheet of paper that said, until my one thing is done, everything else is a distraction. Try it. Put it where, let me highlight that. Maybe I need to do that. Maybe you should do that. What do you think? Put it where you can see it and where others can see it as well. Then make this the mantra you say to yourself and everyone else. In time, others will begin to understand how you work and support it. Just watch. The last thing that can knock you off your time block is when you can't free your mind. Day in and day out, your own need to do other things instead of your one thing may be your biggest challenge to overcome. All those bad habits, right? I'm going to highlight that. Yeah, we usually are our own worst enemy. You know, YouTube, Facebook, Email, text, the next bing on the phone. Back to the book. Life doesn't simply, our life doesn't simplify itself the moment you simplify your focus. There's always other stuff screaming to be done. Always. So when stuff pops into your head, just write it down on a task list and get back to what you're supposed to be doing. In other words, do a brain dump. Then put it out of sight and out of mind until it's time comes. In the end, there are plenty of ways your time block can get sabotaged. Here are four proven ways to battle distractions and keep your eye on your one thing. Number one, build a bunker. 
Find somewhere to work that takes you out of the path of disruption and interruption. If you have an office, get a do not disturb sign. If it has glass walls, install shades. If you work in a cubicle, get permission to put up a folding screen. If necessary, go elsewhere. The immortal Ernest Hemingway kept a strict writing schedule starting at 7 every morning in his bedroom. The mortal but still immensely talented business author Dan Heath bought an old laptop, deleted all its browsers for good measure, deleted its wireless network drivers, and he would take his way back machine to a coffee shop to avoid distractions. Between the two extremes, you could just find a vacant room and simply close the door. Number two, store provisions. Have any supplies, materials, snacks, or beverages you need on hand. Coffee? Hell yeah. And other than for a bathroom break, avoid leaving your bunker. A simple trip to the coffee machine can derail your day should you encounter someone seeking to make you part of theirs. Number three, sweep for mines. Turn off your phone, shut down your email, and exit your internet browser. Your most important work deserves 100% of your attention. Number four, enlist support. Tell those most likely to seek out, seek you out what you're doing and when you're available. It's amazing how accommodating others are when they see the big picture and know when they can access you. If, ultimately, you continue a tug-of-war to make time, blocking take place, then use the focusing question to ask, what's the one thing I can do to protect my time block every day, such by doing it, everything else I might do will either be easier or unnecessary. Big ideas. Number one, connect the dots. Extraordinary results become possible when where you want to go is completely aligned with what you do today. It's kind of like we broke it out from the someday goal to the five-year goal to the one-year goal to the monthly goal to the weekly goal to the daily goal. Tap into your purpose and allow that clarity to dictate your priorities. With your priorities clear, the only logical course is to go to work. Number two, time block your one thing. The best way to make your one thing happen is to make regular appointments with yourself. Time block early in the day and block big chunks of it. No less than four hours. Think of it this way. If your time blocking were on trial, would your calendar contain enough evidence to convict you? Number three, excuse me, protect your time block at all costs. Time blocking works only when your mantra is nothing and no one has permission to distract me from my one thing. Probably including myself. Unfortunately, your resolve won't keep the world from trying. So be creative when you can be and firm when you must. Your time block is the most important meeting of your day. So whatever it takes to protect it is whatever you have to do. The people who achieve extraordinary results don't achieve them by working more hours. They achieve them by getting more done in the hours they work. Oh, time blocking is one thing. Productive time blocking is another. Yeah, you could time block a bunch of bullshit, couldn't you? Does it make any sense? And that is the end of the chapter. I highlighted a bunch of stuff this week. Is this helping you as much as it's helping me? I hope so. All right, let's go back and do a little quick review. I know this one went a little long this week. I couldn't help it. Had a bunch of distractions. All right, so what have I highlighted? We'll go back to uh, chapter 11. Start with the big stuff and see where it takes you. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't typically have this problem, but um, if you can't decide what to do, just start. And then uh, over time, you know, know what to get rid of and what to keep. 
Um, what else did I highlight in this chapter? Number five, recruit support. Research shows that those around you can influence you tremendously. Starting a success support group with some of your work colleagues can help inspire all of you to practice the success habit every day. Get your family involved. Share your one thing. Get them on board. Use the focusing question around them to show them how the success habit can make a difference in their schoolwork, their personal achievement, or any other part of their lives. Basically, this is kind of like, uh, I think it was Zig Ziglar. I can remember who said it earlier. I think it was Zig Ziglar. I don't know. Somebody. You are the average of the top, uh, the people, you, the five people you spend the most time with. I think this is kind of the same way. Make sure you put people in your life that are trying to help you with your goals, right? Um, we'll hold you accountable too. I have to join a team for that. Chapter 12. What do we have highlighted here? Extraordinary results require a great answer. So if your answer sucks, eh, get a better answer. A great answer is essentially a new answer. It's the same answer you had before. Eh, probably not going to help, right? Um, Gary, you're smart, but people have lived before you. You're not the first person to dream big. So you'd be wise to study what others have learned first and then build your actions on the backs of their lessons. I think this is mainly a problem for younger people. I mean, I did this more when I was young. I fight it now. Um, you think your idea is so great, right? And then you don't realize other people had the idea and you go out and you reinvent the wheel when you could have just, uh, stolen somebody else's better answer probably, right? The research and experience of others is the best is the best place to start when looking for your answer. Somebody's probably smarter than you too, right? You're looking for the next thing you can do in the same direction that the best performers are heading, or if necessary, in an entirely new direction. A new answer usually requires new behavior, so don't be surprised if along the way to sizable success you change in the process, but don't let it stop you. Yeah, you probably have to. All right, now we're in part three. Um, there's a natural rhythm to our lives that becomes a simple formula for implementing the one thing and achieving extraordinary results. Purpose, priority, and productivity. And think of this as a picture where purpose is your foundation, priority is built upon your foundation, what should you worry about, and then productivity matches the purpose and priority. It's like the tippy top of the pyramid, right? The more productive people are, the more purpose and priority are pushing and driving them, right? Congruency. Great businesses are built one productive person at a time. Make that you, right? Chapter 13. Live with purpose. Live by priority. Live for productivity. That's basically another way of saying the same thing. Who we are and where we want to go determine what we do and what we accomplish. A life lived on purpose is the most powerful of all and the happiest. And this is more like just don't let life happen to you. I think I'm guilty of that as well, right? You just get in a rut. Just keep going, you know, go to life. Don't let, don't make life go to you as best as possible. Um, there is no secret is simply made up of human desire. This is for the begging bull, Right. Human desire is bottomless. It's what you're willing to do that gets it and it puts a fine point. Because uh, if desire, if it's just some desire, something you could just give somebody or you, it could be quenched, then, um, you know, it's just, it's like that bowl, right? You just keep throwing resources at it till 
you know, you run out of resources. Happiness happens on the way to fulfillment, becoming more engaged in what we do by finding ways to make our life more meaningful is the surest way to find lasting happiness, right? You know, like I want to farm, so work towards it. I believe that financially wealthy people are those who have enough money coming in without having to work to finance their purpose in life. I got to get that farm money together, son. You know what I'm saying? What do you got to get together? Time brings clarity. And if you find you don't like it, you can always change your mind. It's your life. I do this a lot. Sometimes what you think you want isn't what you actually want. Chapter 14. Purpose without priority is powerless. I think that's pretty self-evident. It's an ordinary occurrence, oddly named hyperbolic discounting. The farther away a reward is in the future, the smaller the immediate motivation to achieve it. This is why habits and tying it to the now are so important, right? He said goal setting in the now. This is what he's referring to. You know, making it real now, not some distant thing in the future, right? Because you're training your mind how to think, how to connect one goal with the next one over time until you know the most important thing you must do right now. You're learning how to think big, but go small, right? This is where we're talking about the picture, how your your domino, your right now domino knocks into your daily domino, which knocks into your weekly domino, which knocks into your monthly domino and your yearly domino and your five-year Domino and your someday not domino connect today to all your tomorrows. It matters. And that's the domino, right? Everything you do touches the next thing. And once you know what to do, the only thing left is to go from knowing to doing. So stop talking, stop planning, start doing. Chapter 15, productive action transforms lives. Yes, Productive is exactly what Scrooge was, and there's no better word than productivity to describe what you want from what you do when the outcome matters. And if you picked a good goal, the outcome does matter, right? In the end, putting together a life of extraordinary results simply comes down to getting the most out of what you do when what you do matters. If it doesn't matter, stop doing it. And the most important thing I learned from these experiences is that the most successful people are the most productive people, right? If disproportionate results come from one activity, then you must give that one activity disproportionate time. This is kind of back to the Pareto's law again, the 80-20 or 90-10 or 95-5. There's going to be some things you know, there's going to be one or two things you do, which disproportionately account for most for a great proportion of your results. Make sure you give that all the time it needs and not let the other stuff interrupt. Resting is as important as working. I need to take a page out of this. The key to making this work is to block time as early in your day as you possibly can. This goes back to creating habits, and um, and remember, if you're early in the book and they're talking about willpower and how willpower is depleted, but you know it's kind of, it's kind of like you fill up your gas tank. Don't wait to the end of the day to uh, do your one thing because your gas tank might be empty. I think is what he's saying. You know, my recommendation is to block four hours a day. I have no idea how this is even possible, but I'm going to try. This isn't a typo. I repeat four hours a day. Honestly, that's the minimum. If you can do more, then do it. 
shit, that seems impossible to me, but I'm going to see about doing four hours a day. To experience extraordinary results, be a maker in the morning and a manager in the afternoon. I think this goes back to willpower too, right? Knock the shit out. That's important while your willpower gas tank is high. Um, that way, when you run out, you run out on less important things. And block an hour each week to review your annual and monthly goals. Um, I need to do that, too. You guys got a list of shit you need to do? There's magic in knocking down your most important domino day after day. And this is in a reference to the X's and the Stephen King and Don't Break the Chain. I think maybe I should do this, too, right? Until my one thing is done, everything else is a distraction. Day in and day out, your own need to do other things instead of your one thing may be your biggest challenge to overcome. I generally think I am my biggest challenge to overcome, right? I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I am constantly getting in my way. I need to stop it. The people who achieve extraordinary results don't achieve them by working more hours. They achieve them by getting more done in the hours they work. I feel like I need to write that on the board. And... That is the end. So next week, we ended on page 174 for those following along. And I think next week we're going to finish this thing off. We are, we are. All right. So we stopped at the end of chapter 15 on page 174. And next week we're going to start on chapter 16, the three commitments on page 175. And we're going to go till the end. Um, so it'll be a little shorter next week. Some of these chapters were a little longer. So yeah, we'll do that. As this, um, I hope this is helping you as much as it's helping me. So let me know what you think. I would appreciate it. Sorry. I'm sick. Sorry. I was late this week too. All right. Um, for those of you who haven't yet, if you're enjoying this podcast and this is series, can you go on to iTunes and do me a favor and rate and review? That is one of the greatest ways you can help me out if you enjoy this podcast. If you don't, move along. All right. I'm sorry I'm uh, not doing well enough for you. Share it also on social media. That's the second greatest thing you can do. Hit that little share button. And if you do it from the Renegade Joint Investor page, I can see it and I can thank you. But ultimately just share it. So for all those who do share that I can't see, thank you. Um, if I do see it, what I do as I say, thank you for sharing. So for everybody who did leave a review and did share, thanks, man. I really do appreciate it. It really does matter. Um, thank you and follow along for this. Um, We'll start on chapter 16 next week, all right? As I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. Pick some goals, man. I know there's some distractions and you made some mistakes and you maybe had some bad people or a bad start in your life, right? Pick some goals. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. I want to thank you for listening. I really do appreciate your attention. I know you can do lots of other things. Until the next podcast, crush it.